Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast where we explore all things assisted reproductive technology, going beyond the technology to tell the real stories of lives changed. Um, I am Ellen Trackman. I am an attorney specialized in assisted reproductive technology law, and I'm honored to be here with my co-host and my sister, Jennifer White. Hi, I, I'm excited. Ellen is a lawyer. I, I do have to tell my really <laughs> embarrassing story here. I, I take notes constantly and don't think about it. And there is a note at the bottom of my page right now. And it simply says, Ellen is a lawyer. Because that obvious, that was just not obvious to any of us at this point. <laughs> I know at the bottom of my page says, Jennifer is the best sister ever. So oh, when? See, that's all I need for an introduction is I'm the best sister Because I forget. Ever. I have to remind myself. That- oh, oh, never mind then. Yeah. It's, it's like an affirmation. You have to remind yourself that I'm a good sister. Okay. Yeah. And it'll make, maybe I'll make it true. <laughs> so, um, yes, I am Jennifer. I am Ellen's sister. Uh, I am sometimes a nice sister. No, just only sometimes though. But uh, we do own a Colorado surrogacy, Montana surrogacy, and New Mexico surrogacy together and have a fantastic time changing people's lives. And even better, we get to interview people and talk about how their lives are changed by these things. Uh, our interview today actually is near and dear to my heart. Uh, This is a a military family because my husband is also in the military and they have had some amazing uh, journey and some struggles and it is incredible to see how far they have come and and how things have helped them and impacted their lives. So I'm really excited to get to talk to Crystal and Tyler. Welcome, Crystal and Tyler Wilson. We are so grateful that you have taken the time to join us. Uh, You are absolutely celebrities in our book with all the work that you have done for the IVF community and the veteran community to help people grow families. Um, But I want to start at the beginning. Um, Where to start? Well, first, do you want to say hi and give a brief introduction of yourselves? Yes, thank you so much for having us on. We're really excited to be with you. And we are Crystal and Tyler Wilson. We have been together for just over three years, and we've actually known each other for a little while longer. I'll let Tyler tell the story about how we met and then how things moved on from there. Okay. Tyler. Uh, my name is Tyler Wilson, and um, Crystal and I originally met back in uh, the summer of 2013. Um, I was originally wounded in Afghanistan in uh, May 2005 um, and went went through my rehab and everything, but um, went through a number of years where I was just kind of, you know, I was medically retired at the age of 20 and just didn't really know what what to do, Um, you know, kind of no direction in what I wanted to do in life. And uh, so you you were really young when you were injured. Did you go into the military at 18? Uh, yeah, I joined right out of high school, um, shortly after 9-11. Um, one of my biggest motivations was uh, uh, United 93, and I always thought to myself uh, before I joined that if just a bunch of regular people could fight back, that they were thrown into such a situation, the least I could do was um, 
go fight on their behalf. Wow. And uh, United 93, was, that was the plane that went down in Pennsylvania, right? Correct. Is that right? Yeah. Where people took down the terrorists before it could get to, what was the destination? The uh, They're not really sure if it was either the Capitol building or the White House, um, probably one of those two. But so I joined in uh, 2003, right out of high school. And uh, what, what branch uh, did you join, Tyler? I was the ar- I was in the army, and uh, I joined uh, it, the Airborne Infantry, um, and I was assigned to the 173rd Airborne Brigade. Um, fortunately, I was lucky enough to be stationed in Italy for some time uh, with them before our unit deployed to... Uh, that sounds much nicer yeah, than Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> food. At the very least, the food is probably better. I got to see a lot, do a lot uh, in the year and a half I was there before we deployed to Afghanistan. Uh, in the spring of 2005, uh, our unit deployed to Afghanistan. And um, on uh, May 3rd, 2005, uh, we were called in as a quick reaction force to a group of our scouts that were ambushed in a river valley. Um, and we flew in on helicopters and essentially our unit had turned over the, kicked over a hornet's nest, um, where we found out that there was a, actually about 150 insurgents there that were protecting a, uh, a Taliban warlord that, uh, our scouts basically literally drove straight into um but we uh we were uh, fighting back with all our guys on the quick reaction force and uh that's when i uh well i was i was assigned to a machine gun team and we were up on a hillside uh, uh covering our guys as they moved through the valley and that's when we were getting uh shot at uh, that's when I got I got hit a total of four times, and the first bullet paralyzed me uh, from the waist down. And subsequently, after that, I was I was hit uh, in the chest two more times. One my vest stopped, and then the other uh, went through my left lung and embedded in my liver. Um, and then the the fourth bullet went through my left knee, uh, clean through in and out. But uh, the big ones was the first one that paralyzed me, and then uh, the life-threatening one was the, the one that went through my left lung and lacerated my liver. And how I didn't bleed out, I have absolutely no idea because it took quite a while. It took quite a while for the medevacs to uh, uh, to get there and load us up and and fly back to Kandahar. Um, I was in and out of consciousness, but I do remember bits and pieces here and there. And um, when I got to Kandahar and into surgery, where they actually uh, removed part of my lung um, to get to the the artery that was severed, um, I actually took a total of 28 units of blood in surgery. And many doctors have looked over my charts and stuff and all of them have said this, the same thing. There's no, there's literally no medical reason you should still be here. So it's incredible. And you and Crystal weren't together at that time. Is that correct? No, no, this was yeah, long before we even knew each other. I, um, I, I said, as a military uh, spouse myself, and I just know like stuff like that, the communication level during crises with the military is, uh, shall we say poor? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. His yeah. parents were, uh, his parents were his emergency contacts. And they said that the army told them that, 
he was wounded. However, there were no life-threatening injuries or no life sustaining. What? No, oh, no vital organs hit wow. his lung, his liver, and um, his spine were all impacted. Oh, my God. But, uh, wow. So after that, I mean, I, I spent uh, four months in rehab, inpatient rehab, and then was discharged and, uh, just before my 21st birthday. And then... Uh, for years after that, like I said before, just kind of floating through life and not really knowing what to do. Um, and then 2013, uh, came along and I put on a little bit of weight and just, you know, just sedentary lifestyle with, uh, you know, being in a wheelchair and, um, just poor nutrition, poor, uh, activity level, everything, I kind of got in the mindset of, oh, well, I'm in a wheelchair now. I can't really do certain things. But again, I was, you know, I grew up in Colorado, um, hiking and camping and biking and skiing and everything. Uh, and after I was wounded, it was just kind of, uh, that part of my life kind of over with. And then I got to 2013 and I was, I just got to this, this point in my life where I was, I just need to make a change, a positive change for the better in my life or, or else. And, uh, and, and that, that's how it has to go. And with a lot of people, you know, no one's going to do it for you. You got to make the decision yourself and, and take the initiative. And, um, that's when I got involved in uh, a hand cycling clinic through the VA. And, uh, that's when Crystal and I first met and I thought, well, you know, I push a wheelchair every day and stuff. How hard can it be to hand cycle? <laughs> and right? I'm strong. my, uh, my first ride out on a hand cycle was 2.2 miles around Washington park in Denver. And I thought I was going to pass out and didn't die. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh. <clears throat> Needless yeah. to say, it was it not. Was, hot. was Crystal there? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, oh, that's but hot. She, she <laughs> has a way of seeing potential in, uh, in everyone and convinced me to uh, 10 and a half months later, I, was, uh, I did my first Ride the Rockies tour, uh, wow. which is roughly wow. you know, six, seven that's days, and just over 400 miles, um, touring a bunch of different uh, cities in towns in uh, Colorado. And uh, that was my first of three that I, I did. And oddly enough, I've still yet to have said yes to any of them. You getting voluntold for, for all these types of things. So. Uh, <laughs> you, you got out of the military, but you didn't get out of the military mindset on that. Yeah. No. <laughs> So the military just prepared me for, for marriage with her. So. That's right. And Crystal, such an amazing job. So you do adaptive sports. Is that what it's called? Is that right? Yes. I've been an adaptive sports therapist for many years and we ended up, that's how we met. And then after a couple of years of working together, he just, Tyler had the most incredible outlook and he came from such an incredible story and background of spending eight years kind of searching for his purpose and finding a way to live a healthy life and be well again. And he really just took to it and embraced. And like he said, I mean, he 
still has yet to say yes to any of the Ride the Rockies, but has done three. So he's obviously (laughs) willing to put in the work. And I just saw that he had such a great mentality. And I told him that, look, I can teach people how to ride hand cycles. I can teach people how to monoski. I can teach people how to do these adaptive sports, but I can't teach them what it's like to live every day as a paraplegic or a person with a disability like yours. And I asked him to come back and volunteer as a peer mentor because of how empowered I felt by his story and how hard he worked. And I just knew it would speak to men and women who were in his same seat that came in and he could give a personal perspective of what it's actually like to go from living a sedentary lifestyle to being able to live well again. I'm sorry. And I want to go back and ask something that's totally just personal to me, but Tyler, how supportive on a mental health basis was the VA or the military to you as you made that transition in those eight years? Because that's what I, I'm kind of hearing you say things that hint at maybe some depression and things like that. But I mean, did the, did the VA even encourage you to do any of these things or did you have to seek these things out on your own? Uh, pretty much what the adaptive sports I sought out on my own. Um, I did participate in some small activities years before that. Um, I did a, a one-time monoski camp in 07 and then... Uh, uh, the National Veterans Wheelchair Games in uh, 2008, but it was kind of one of those where I did that, but I, the things I did was, you know, you know, things like the nine ball competition and stuff. It was, you know, very low-key, not active at all and stuff, and there wasn't anyone there that encouraged me well, and saw anything, well, you should do more than that, you know, you should do this and that, and especially being younger. Um, but yeah, especially back in 2005, um, it was pretty early on in the conflicts too. And, and, uh, it was just not really a priority, uh, at the time. And especially for myself with a combat related spinal cord injury, there's not a whole lot of us out there with those. Uh, most guys that, you know, were in the service with that have spinal cord in- injuries now we're either, you know, mostly falls, um, Car accidents. car accidents, motorcycle accidents, things like that. Um, very few are actually from combat. And uh, it's, uh, they, they really didn't know what to do with me at the time back in 2005. Like when I was at Walter Reed, they stuck me on the uh, neuroscience ward with all the traumatic brain injuries and things like that. Cause it's like, well, it's a nervous system and everything like that, but they don't have a, you know, they didn't have a, a spinal cord injury, uh, even clinic or anything like that. Uh, at the time, and that's why I ended up uh, out at uh, the Albuquerque VA, closer to my home of record in Durango, um, because they had a spinal cord unit. I didn't know it was not the not the greatest experience, and yeah, especially the mental health side of things, where they just. I remember, you know, a couple psychologists coming in a couple times, um, trying to deal with some some coping mechanisms and things like that. That worked okay at the time as an inpatient, but there was really no, no follow up, no no support. It was just kind of, you know, you had to seek it out. That's interesting. I just, I've, sorry, I know that's totally off topic of where we're going. My husband's been in since 1999. And so I've been watching mental health and how it's been changing over the years. And I did not see a big big jump and change until in the past two or three years. So I was just curious what your experience was back then. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there was, it was 
basically just an afterthought almost back in 2005 and I was in, they were just starting to figure out, oh, well, I guess PTSD is a bigger issue than we thought. So Crystal, was there a moment where you went from, I'm not impressed to like, hmm, maybe this guy's worth a second look? <laughs> uh, it was actually a friend that had pointed oh, out our chemistry. You noticed it. Someone else had to, to I, say something. I mean, we had, I had, I really didn't see it. And I mean, we were really good friends at that point. And I was like, no, I mean, we're, we're just friends. And he was like, no, there, trust me, there's more. Like you guys have chemistry. And then, so I was like, okay, fine. Really to get him to get off my back. I was like, fine, I'll like try something. And then we always joke that (laughs) Tyler says he was playing hard to get, but in reality, he was pretty clueless that, and we're lucky that we don't play by baseball rules because he was on his fifth strike. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but eventually he figured it out. Eventually. Right. <laughs> At the right time. That's what I like to say. So you guys knew even before you officially got married that you wanted to have a family, you wanted to have kids. Um, how did that, given given what Tyler had been through um, and even what he was learning with you, how did, how did that conversation go and what were your thoughts and expectations? It was, um, so I'd actually been married before and um, for 10 years I was under the impression and told that I couldn't have kids because of my endometriosis. And then uh, after 10 years, they were doing some follow-up studies and actually found out that it might be a possibility for me to carry a baby. It would probably involve some sort of fertility treatment, but that it would still be possible. And that's great news. Yes. So ultimately, and that's the point where you're like, but maybe not with this guy. (laughs) My ex-husband had never really wanted kids. And so when I found out that I couldn't, I thought, Oh, this is perfect meant to be kind of thing. And then, um, we, my ex and I had a really lengthy, pretty much year long discussion over, to try and figure out what would work and what we really wanted because kids was a really big deal. And it's something that nobody should compromise on, on either side of the, on either side of the fence. And we decided that I really did want kids. And for 10 years, I had just been telling myself I didn't because I thought I couldn't and he still didn't. So um, we chose to remain friends and that it was unhealthy for us to stay married because of such a big issue and oh, that sounds so so mature and healthy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. people tell us sometimes right? that they never hear the whole staying friends after divorce. But it was it was a really important thing for us to make sure that neither of us were compromising on such a big issue that ultimately would impact us for the rest of our lives. And then, so after that, um, while after that, Tyler and I started dating, and on our second date, I came straight out. So I'm like, look. I'm 31 and I got divorced because my ex didn't want kids. I want kids. So do you want them or not? Because you're great and you're my friend. But if you don't, like, we need to move on. We're not chasing this one. If that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how did he yes. respond? So obviously he was very on board and he was like, well, yeah, I want kids. I just haven't really thought about what that means or how we're going to get there or anything like that. And then so we... Ended up, uh, it was about six months before we got married that we started looking into IVF 
and found out at that point that there was no coverage through the VA that we would be out on our own. And as Tyler says, we were told on multiple occasions, well, thanks for your service, thanks for your service, but you're on your own here. We'll take care of the rest of your medical care, but we're not going to do this for you. So we were both completely taken aback and shocked and at that point felt completely lost because we didn't feel like we could do it on our own. That I mean, we were looking at a multiple tens of thousands of dollars expense that we weren't planning on. We didn't know how we were going to make happen. And we were like, well, I mean, we at least have to try and we have to try and figure this out. And with our wedding coming up, my best friend, Chelsea, actually had an incredible idea that helped us so much that she had the idea of instead of a wedding registry, because we already were two grown adults with households already. Two households worth of stuff. Yeah. We didn't need five toasters. Um, so she actually started a GoFundMe page for us. And in place of wedding registry, we said, if you want to give us something, then we'd love for you to help us reach this goal of IVF. And because of that, and then our clinic, uh, CCRM Colorado center for reproductive medicine discounted their services 50%. And we also received a couple of grants and through BabyQuest and a couple of other medication grants. And that was honestly the only way that we were able to afford it because that left us with $14,400 rather than $40,000 out of pocket. Wow. So, so you guys went through the process, though, pretty similarly to most people then. I mean, so finances aside, you went and you had your, I assume your eggs harvested and, you know, sperm created embryos. How many embryos did you guys end up with? I always like to ask that question because it's such a prying question. Two. Oh, wow. Only two. Oh, wow. We ended up with two. Um, we started with 18 eggs on the day of retrieval. 14 were mature, 10 of them fertilized normally. Four of them made it to blastocyst stage. Two of them were viable embryos. We transferred both of them and our son is the only one that survived. Wow. Okay. That's, that's really incredible. So, <laughs> um, are you the miracle on many levels? Right. And he's how old now? I apologize. I was he's 17, 17 months, months. Oh my goodness. So, so he's a uh, busy right now. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, that's, I, I'm sorry. I'm just totally bowled over by the 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 luck and the odds and everything right there that's incredible so how when as you guys were digging into this like what did you find through the VA like what resources things like that I I know obviously there were none at the time and I know you're a big advocate to of trying to increase these services so I'd love to hear kind of your journey on on how that has been and and what you found and where you think things are going and where you hope things are going So we ended up, it was the biggest realization to us is that not only us, but every single person we talked to was in shock that it wasn't covered. That the only reason that we needed IVF, like even with my infertility aside, we could have tried other other fertility medicines, but with Tyler's spinal cord injury, our only option was IVF. And every single person we talked to was blown away, just as shocked as we were that it wasn't covered and there was no help offered, absolutely none. And there was no resources, no support, no anything that was available to us. And that honestly 
pissed us off. Yeah. Both of us, because we were sitting here going like, wait a minute, you will literally cover a wheelchair, medication, prosthetic limbs, all of these things, and they should be covered. But this is also medical care directly related to his combat injury. So why is this not covered? And that's what really lit the fire under both of us is the fact that I don't think either one of us realized how one prevalent infertility was. And with both of us suffering from different infertility diagnoses, it made it even more relevant to us that we're both in this journey together, that it's not just Tyler's injury, but it's my endometriosis that's playing into this as well. And there aren't services and coverage available for so many people, especially men and women who put their lives on the line for our country. And now they're being asked to come home and give up on their dreams before they left for the military. Tyler always wanted to be a dad. And just because he served in the military shouldn't mean that he should give up on that dream. He should. Right. I mean, the point is to rehabilitate back to having a normal functional life and having a normal functional life is being able to do things that normal functional people do. Exactly. And that was a big thing for us is that we got so frustrated because we, yes, we did find a way and we were so blessed and so lucky that so many people rallied behind us that I mean, $14,000 out of pocket, we were able to find a way to do that. $40,000, there is absolutely no way we could have figured that out. And the cost just kept adding up because it's not just IVF, the IVF costs, but it's the medication costs. And it's Tyler had to have surgery for sperm retrieval too. And he had to be on medication and it was just cost after cost after cost. And every time we went in, we would just feel defeated and we would feel like, disappointed and left alone or left out and forgotten and abandoned. And, and in all of those moments, it reinvigorated our efforts and our reason why we fight so hard for other families to have this coverage because nobody deserves to feel like that. Infertility is so hard in and of itself. Now, when you're trying to find a way to build a family, to have to go through all of this additional stress. And they say, oh, you're, you're going through infertility treatment. Try not to stress. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. Right. Yeah. And I, well, I would say from personal experience, military doctors are not necessarily the most sympathetic to infertility either. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no. And even active duty, uh, if you're not right next to uh, Walter Reed, essentially, there's no chance of even for active duty to have any kind of services, which is... It, really nuts. Yeah. There's six, I think it's six military treatment facilities that offer IVF. But the problem with that is that the bill that's in place, you have to have the services and you have to go through treatment before you're discharged. When you have someone like Tyler, who he was just paralyzed. My God, it's a debilitating life injury. And he was 20. He was single. All of these things. And I'm sure he would have stayed in the military if they would have let him, but he couldn't. (laughs) Exactly. And he was discharged five months into it before he had even left the hospital. That's not an appropriate time to start a family. The the plus side and minus of being so early in the conflicts is the backlog of medical requirements wasn't there. Yeah, I was right. I was medically retired four days before I was discharged for inpatient stay. I was curious about that. I was surprised when you said that, but because it seemed, 
I mean, my experience right now is generally people I know who have yeah. medical discharges is that it's years. way after they have been, you know, they're, they're done, they're home. They're just kind of sitting and waiting on their discharge. Yeah, definitely. And that, I think that was pretty much the biggest thing that motivated us to start fighting and continue fighting and continues to motivate us is that we know what it was like to go through that first cycle. We know what it was like to have to struggle to find a way and no family deserves to have to suffer like that. You are already going through so much with just infertility. And now you're adding in the fact that it's not covered. It's ridiculous. So what changes have you lobbied for and actually been seen over the past couple of years? So we started advocating in May of 2016 um, really heavily, and that's when our first trip to D.C. was then. And luckily, we actually were able to witness a big victory, the first victory in receiving coverage for combat-related and service-connected infertility, where currently it's the current bill expires the end of September. However, it was just extended for the next appropriations bill through September of 2020 as well, where it does provide temporary coverage for combat-related or service-connected infertility issues for up to three rounds, three lifetime rounds of IVF. And the, so it's a Really amazing victory. However, it's not good enough, honestly. Well, all this was, yeah, it was just the uh, the Murray Amendment that was put into the uh, military and VA uh, appropriations bill back in 2016. There was an amendment added that added this. This is that's why it has to be um, looked at and it's like renewed every two years for the right. For the it's not a change to the actual regulation right now. Yes. It's right. just a actual special appropriation. Right. And one of the biggest things, one of the biggest things we're actually, we have gone through a cycle with this coverage. And one of the biggest downfalls that we found with the coverage is that one, it's not a permanent coverage. So at any point it can be removed. And two, it doesn't, because it's not permanent coverage and it's not a standalone bill, it actually doesn't overturn the ban that was placed in 1992 for that prevents the VA from covering IVF. So technically the VA is still not able to fund IVF and what's having to, basically what's having to be happening right now is that they're having to go to a third party vendor to kind of sift through and refer and, we can tell you from personal experience that system is failing miserably and it's not uh, any, any referral system like that is for the military and the BA. So yes, I yeah, know that too. It's just, it's not. <laughs> um, is it capped coverage? Is it capped as well as in like it's X number of dollars. And if they run out of dollars for the year, they're done providing services for the year. Cause I've seen that happen too. It's not necessarily capped coverage, but um, in that sense, it's just three cycles through the lifetime. Um, and then there are other specifics, like it has to be service connected. You have to be married. Um, you have to use your own sperm and your wife's own eggs kind of thing. You can't use any donors and wow. Yeah, so- that also seems super discriminatory. Exactly. I mean, there are plenty of other way, reasons women cannot use their own or men exactly. cannot use their own gametes for things. Exactly. That and that's, a cup, that's why we continue to advocate for the permanent coverage because that would also be eliminated um, with, I mean, we've got friends who 
part of their blast injuries were they lost their testes. So now they're, they're not eligible. So yes, their combat injuries cause their infertility, but they can't use these services because they can't produce sperm. Well, and where that comes from, I think more than anything is just the way that, you know, bills are written and oversights and wording and certain things and then how it's interpreted afterwards. It's made in the law and, oh, well, it doesn't cover this because it doesn't say this and, you know, things like that. It just needs to, you know, things like that. A permanent bill needs to be put in place that covers all of these particular issues, not kind of in such a broad uh, broad spectrum. And, uh, you know, the, the funding, as far as I'm aware, is pulled from uh, the VA general fund. Um, okay. Than, so that answer is my cap question then. So it's not like it's part no, of a no, special appropriation. It comes out of the okay. discretionary funds as far as I'm aware. Yeah. And then another downfall of <clears throat> how it's being implemented is, I mean, it took almost six months for things to get rolling. And obviously anything to get rolling in the VA takes a lot of time. And at that point it had only left 18 months worth of the original coverage. And we weren't even sure at that point that it was going to be renewed. So you were leaving families absolutely scrambling. So the same thing can continue to happen every two years. We don't know if it's going to be renewed. So if somebody happens to start their IVF cycle at the wrong time and the fiscal year ends, then tough luck. Right. And I assume you can only use certain clinics, which then is going to lead to a backlog of those clinics as well. Yeah, the... How the bill was supposed to be implemented was that you could use your clinic of choice. However, how it is choosing to be implemented is not that. It's you can only use certain contracted clinics. And that's another big part of our battle is that it should be truly the clinic of choice. Because, for example, in our case, uh, we had a clinic that we used for our son and we already had established a clinical working relationship with them. They already had Tyler's sperm on freeze and we were ready to go. And it took months for us to be told, oh, actually you can't use them. And I mean, literally multiple of months, many months. And at that point, we were like, well, this coverage extend or expires in six months. And we were being told, well, it can take up to six months for a new clinic to be onboarded. And, but the cl- coverage expires in six months, and we're not sure if it's going to be renewed. Well, and a whole, tri- a whole cycle of retrieval and transfer takes, you know, at least a minimum of two to three months as it is right there. Exactly. Exactly. Ugh. So we were definitely not very pleased with having to at the last minute, switch clinics and honestly didn't have the greatest experience with that clinic. Um, We ended up with a failed round and it just, it was not how things should have been handled. And granted, that was one of many, many, many learning experiences that we had, including, I mean, the VA didn't really implement across the board. One VA was doing it really well, and then another VA was doing it really poorly. Um, the worst the worst example that we had and we got involved in was that there was a family in Washington that was told that a donor embryo would be covered because her the husband, the veteran, was unable to provide sperm for an IVF cycle. So they chose a donor embryo and had a 
embryo donated to them. And then after the process was already getting started, they had found out that actually it's not covered. So their local VA told them that it was covered and then national came down later and denied it. So there's, there's many, many, many stories of one VA is doing a great job and there are many other VAs, including the Denver VA, that are not doing a great job across the board. Wow, that's really frustrating and probably requires a lot of communication among everybody who's dealing with this. And people don't like to talk about infertility. I mean, it's it, it feels, it, it should be something everybody should be okay talking about, but it, it feels like a very secret issue for so many people. And so I'm sure it's very difficult to even tease out the people who are searching for this service on top of it being a difficult service to obtain anyway. Absolutely. So what can people do to help, help advocate for you? I mean, is there anything that, I mean, I'm obviously I'm a military family myself, but what about people who aren't military families? What, what can they do to, to either bring awareness or help advocate for, for this? I'd say just for, you know, your average person um, wanting to get involved is, you know, that's really the first step is wanting to get involved and do something about it. Um, and just taking that step. Um, the, the biggest thing people can do is uh, speak with their uh, representatives and senators, um, you know, call their offices even and just, you know, tell them, Hey, you know, this is an important issue that, you know, I feel is not being looked at. And, um, you know, there are bills out there um, that just kind of, you know, go through every once in a while. And it's just, it's a, it's hard thing to predict when certain bills are going to be put up for vote and when it's going to be shelved for a later time. But, um, you know, Senator uh, Patty Murray is a big one. And uh, um, I'm trying to think of who else the Senator uh, Booker in New Jersey, they actually, um, just uh, when we were in D.C. this last May, uh, presented uh, the very, very beginnings of the basically what is referred to as the holy grail of infertility coverage. Um, and, you know, it's, it's going to, it's a bill that will, you know, probably take years to pass and just, it, it'll take just a certain time, you know, the right time, right place in, in D.C. on the Hill to, to be looked at, but... Um, those bills, you know, for people to call their, call their representatives and their, um, their senators and say, Hey, we're paying attention to this issue. And, you know, this is something that needs to be addressed is probably the, the, the main, the first place to start. Excellent. And I know Resolve has done a lot of advocacy for, for the situation as well, too. Definitely. And that's one of the biggest things is getting involved and resolve.org. They have a lot of resources and information on how to get involved and where to go, what to do, whether it's going to a walk of hope in your area to help support those who have been diagnosed with infertility. And one of the biggest things as you mentioned was that infertility is still a very quiet topic. It's not very vocalized and a lot of people who are going through it definitely are struggling. We just as Tyler and I, just as you all know, we all struggle and we can come and have our voice in many different ways, whether it is calling your senator, writing your senator, going to a walk of hope. And it's more prevalent than we realize. One in eight people are suffering with infertility. So it's not 
very uncommon. It's just the fact that people aren't being as vocal about it. And it's an understandable thing. You know, I, I totally get why a lot of people are not not willing to talk openly about it because it is such a personal issue. And uh, but on with that, you know, the only way the more people are going to know about this is this, if you talk about it and you know speak about it openly and and bring that awareness around because when we first started looking into this and the coverage wasn't there and how many people we spoke to friends and family that were completely baffled and shocked that there was no coverage it's because you know not a, you know hardly anyone really knows about any of this stuff um, that's been uh, our biggest uh, push in the last few years is just to basically bring awareness to the issue at hand um, and go from there. I, I love that. And I appreciate you guys for that. And that's one of the things that we have in our situation used is that both of us have infertility diagnosis. And one of the things that is really frustrating is you feel so alone sometimes when you're diagnosed with infertility and when you're struggling to have a family, if you want to have a family and it's so isolating. It's so disheartening to feel like your entire goal and your dreams and your hopes and your wishes and the life that you wanted to live is being crushed every day, every month that you don't see that positive pregnancy test. Or in our case, you don't even have the chance to have that positive pregnancy test without huge amounts of scientific assistance and medical assistance. And one of the things that we very much, one of the reasons why we very much are advocates for everyone in our situations, anyone who is diagnosed with infertility and wants to build the family, is that we were, we felt that. We felt completely alone and isolated and disheartened and absolutely saddened by our situation and the fact that all we wanted was a family and we hit roadblock after roadblock and we weren't sure how that was going to happen, but we so desperately wanted it. So we want to be there for anybody who is in that situation and everybody comes to being able to speak to their situation at different times. For us, it came when we found out that there was no VA coverage, but it comes for different people at different times. And some people will never, never feel comfortable sharing that story. And that's perfectly acceptable. But one of our things is that we want people to know that they're not alone, that there are other people out there who are in your same shoes and we are here for you. I'm, I'm so inspired for you, by you guys. And I have to say, and I, because I'm a military spouse and I, I hate when people say this to me, but I feel so genuine about this right now. I, one, Tyler, thank you for everything you've sacrificed. And two, Crystal, you... I hate when people thank me for my service because I don't serve because I'm not in military, but I genuinely thank you because you are providing a service to our military. So thank you for your service too. So I really genuinely feel that, that you're doing something incredible for, for everybody, for current veterans and for the future that is coming along. So I, I really appreciate you guys. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thank you. 
lesson of the day. Actually, I'm going to say there's no lesson. Actually, I'm sure there are lessons, but instead of a lesson, I just want to say a big thank you to Tyler and Crystal who, you know, made this journey not just about them and the family they wanted, but to really being out there and helping others and fighting for those um, in a similar position who also really desperately desire a family. So big thanks. And that, that holds true for a lot of our guests. So, you know, thank you to all of them. Um, but thank you again, especially to, to Crystal and Tyler. And and I know I said this in the interview, but I really do. I mean, it's a very heartfelt thank you to them for their service on behalf of uh, everybody in the military, Uh, all military families out there and former military families really do appreciate it. So um, also a huge, huge thank you, as always, to Chris Wright at Work at Bird Studios for making us sound uh, less silly than we probably sound some days. Um, (laughs) Hopefully. I I mean, you know, he can't autocorrect for like us just being us and being awkward, but he, he does a fantastic job. So we really do appreciate him as well. And uh, please do go check us out on iTunes and leave us a review and tell us what you think. And we have been receiving some calls via our um, phone number. And we do Yay. really love to hear from people and get to hear what, you know, your feedback and what you have to say. So we, we're, we're looking forward to hearing from everybody again soon. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.